coming up to Visakha Puja. It's a good occasion to reflect on our good fortune, good karma, to be born in a time when the teachings of a Sambuddha are still present in the world. Those teachings are still available. They're preserved by the Sangha. So the Buddha said another important factor in our practice and in reflecting on our good fortune is the presence of Sangha in the world, living in harmony. If the Sangha wasn't harmonious, it'd be very difficult to practice. If the Sangha can't live together peacefully, set an example to the laity, the laity will tend to lose faith, lose interest. It's also confusing if Sangha is not in harmony. You get too many different views and opinions interpretations of the Dhamma. Fortunately, we're still in a time when there is harmony of the Sangha and the teachings are available. Our teacher, Lumpur Cha, was a very capable teacher, very wise, and creative in teaching both Thai and foreigners. And his Sangha is still growing to this day, even though he died many years ago. The Sangha is like a vessel that contains the Dhamma, looks after it, holds it, for us and for future generations. So it's something very special. And Lumpur Chao's contribution to the world is perhaps being recognized more and more now, looking at his legacy, and in particular the legacy of Sangha. There's one time a young monk went to Lumpur Cha because he was caught into doubt about where he should practice. Should I go here? Should I go there? And Jan Cha rebuked him and said, the place of practice isn't out there. It's not a different monastery, this monastery or that mountain or that forest. The place of practice is right here, pointing to him. This body, let's say six foot tall, 45 inches wide, this is where the place of practice is. Wherever you are, that place of practice is right here. And the practice is about freeing ourselves from suffering, 
abandoning the causes of suffering, experiencing the end of suffering, cessation of suffering. So Lumpur Chao would say, when you cling a lot, attach a lot, you suffer a lot. You cling a little, you suffer a little. You don't cling at all, you don't suffer at all. But again, pointing back to this body and mind right here, it's the place where clinging takes place. It's what we cling to through ignorance, lack of mindfulness, lack of wisdom, we cling to this body and mind. And by extension to everything we're involved with in the world. And so we suffer. So our practice is about following in the footsteps of the Buddha, awakening to the truth, truth of suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the path that leads to the cessation. Through our own efforts, through our own practice, waking up to the truth, as opposed to maybe what we did before, before we were monks, before we practiced. They say we're more like sleepwalkers, going around about our business, but not very clear on where suffering comes from or what to do about it. Just sleepwalking around. Now we're dedicated to mindfulness and wakefulness. Chakaryanu Yoga. Wakefulness meaning waking to the truth. Truth of the way things are through our training. And that's what a monastery is for. It's a place of training. We all come here voluntarily. Having come, we take on the Vinaya as our basis for training, our foundation. It's the requirement of living in a monastery. We, we voluntarily undertake to commit to training in the Vinaya, the Dhamma and the Vinaya. As part of our training in this process of awakening to truth. So we study, we learn, and then we practice. As Lumpur Part was saying when he was here last year, we need to commit to all aspects of the practice if we're going to get to where we want to get to, the end of suffering. So he compared it to a bird. He says a bird needs its feet, needs its wings, needs its eyes. Its feet, he said, are like the sealer of Vinaya. Wings are like samadhi. The eyes are like panya. see the birds in the forest, how agile and swift they are. They can move through the trees very quick. They can land on a, a, any twig or branch they choose. They 
can go up, they can go down. But they're depending on all these different parts of the body to function, to do that. They still need their feet as they fly, as they land. They obviously need their eyes and obviously need their wings. So the different parts of the practice all support each other with the aim of <clears throat> reaching to the end of suffering. <clears throat> over and over again, Lumpur Chao would point back to developing mindfulness as the the quality that is so useful, so beneficial in our practice. Bring up this quality of knowing, being aware of this body and mind in the present moment, over and over again. Because the quality, the, the habit of sleepwalking is when we keep slipping away from mindfulness in our daily life. Wakefulness is when we're putting effort to bringing up mindfulness, cultivating it, bringing the mind to the present moment, to that quality of knowing, but without getting caught up into this body and mind, the five candas, and knowing without bias, knowing with equanimity, neither falling into it attraction nor aversion for the world. And the world is this body and mind that's right here. Maintaining mindfulness, maintaining that place in the middle where suffering doesn't form in our experience. Where clinging, desire and clinging don't take over the mind. And this is the the path where Sila, Samadhi and Panya are all developing together, bringing the mind to see the emptiness of what we normally take as substantial. It's seen through the conventional reality that we're normally locked into when we're sleepwalking around, taking ourselves to be a person, <coughs> our thoughts, Feelings all to be very real, permanent, substantial. Our opinions and views, our beliefs, our thoughts. This body, this mind, it, taking it all as very substantial. Now we're investigating the truth using mindfulness. Seeing through that delusion, the del delusion of the conventional reality, the names, the labels, the concepts stripping it down to what's really there, the arising and ceasing of phenomena, thoughts and feelings, physical, mental phenomena arising and ceasing. And this is exposed by this practice of mindful awareness, investigating, contemplating the truth, learning from our experience rather than just sleepwalking around, always reacting to things, reacting to people with our 
prefer preferences and our aversions, reacting to things with our preferences and aversions, situations. So every on every level we're developing this quality of mindfully knowing the the experience of the present moment, what's going on in these five candas, rather than just believing in the conventional reality and the ideas, the images, the concepts that we normally get caught into. And sometimes we feel sila or vinaya is kind of like children's stuff, because it's a lot about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. But if you're actually looking at the way the mind trains to develop mindfulness and then insight into anicca, dukkha, anatta, you'll see that it's indispensable. The training in Vinaya is giving you the tools to see your own body and mind, to refine your practice of mindfulness, to become familiar, particularly with intention, but also to develop, develop skills in the way we relate to the world, the material world, and then people skillfully so that we can deepen our investigation of truth internally. If you undertake to keep the Vinaya, whether you're talking about five precepts, eight precepts, or the Patimokha, and you're training to become familiar with your intentions, your actions, your speech, becoming mindful, reviewing, reflecting on, clearing away confusion and delusion as you practice the Vinaya. And you see it supports the development of samadhi and then insight directly. It's nothing separate, it's nothing, it's not an obstacle to that, it's not separate, it's supportive once you understand how the process works. And just take very simple, kind of almost daily experiences in the monastery. You were looking at different intentions that arise. So some of our intentions, mental states, thoughts, might be to go against the Vinaya, do things that are not wholesome, not skillful. So what do we do? Well, we learn the Vinaya, we start to restrain them. As we're restraining the more unwholesome tendencies that would lead to breaking the Vinaya, we're also watching them in themselves. What's their nature? So you have a thought to... Say you're hungry in the evening, you think, oh, really like to have some food or at least have, go and maybe pinch some cheese and chocolate or something from the kitchen. It might be a very ordinary thought based on a lifetime of eating in the evening, it's normal in the lay life, but then you have the thought come up, and then you remember, oh, I'm in a monastery, I don't do that, we don't practice that. So what do you do? Well, if you have a sense of shame, sense of hiriotapa, mindfulness arise, where you'll say, oh, I'm not going to follow that intention. It's the first thing, you have that basic restraint. So what happens to that desire? If you're not going to follow it, 
It's got nowhere to go, so you just watch it arising and ceasing. Even if it returns, it's still it's just a thought. An intention arises, ceases. And you can see it's impermanent. What's impermanent is not self. It's just a thought, just an intention. Even if it's very powerful, conditioned with very strong emotions, strong feelings coming up together, it's still something that arises and ceases. It's just a thought, just an intention. So by, keep, by keeping the Vinaya at that point, you're also leading directly into insight, into the impermanent nature of your mental activity. And we've all had the thought to say wanting to eat at the wrong time or take medicines without permission, cheese, chocolate, sugar, whatever. But we've also all seen them just as thoughts, desires that arise, pass away. You learn from that. The more you learn from that, the easier it is to overcome, let go of those thoughts, those desires, and find a subtler kind of happiness, contentment, being mindful enough, insightful enough just to let go of desire rather than always having to follow it. <clears throat> and that's a strength of mind, a skill, a quality that we can build on and use and apply to different situations. Maybe the same with aversion. You have the thought to go and speak harshly or abuse someone. You establish mindfulness and you recognize that this is inappropriate, harmful, based in aversion. So you don't, you don't speak in that way. So what happens to that mood if you don't act on it? it Sooner or later it passes by. And we've had, all had that thought come up hundreds, thousands of times in our life. But if you learn to be mindful of it, we also say oh, it's just an impermanent state of mind. An intention, a thought comes up and then you don't act on it. You watch it pass away. It's not really you. It's not a person, a being. It's just a mental state with its causes and conditions, and you watch it pass. So this isn't just sila, this is samadhi and insight as well. You have to have samadhi to be firm enough not to follow that thought, that desire. You have insight watching it fade away, seeing it as impersonal, impermanent, and not self. It also gives you direct insight into dukkha as not self. When there's no mindfulness, the dukkha surrounding whatever the experience is that leads you to want to take some requisite that you're not supposed to or speak in a way that's harmful. That emotional state, the suffering you can see is impermanent. It's nothing very solid, nothing you have to believe, follow, act on. You can also just watch it fade away. When there's no mindfulness, then states of dukkha feel very substantial. They seem very real, solid, and then we feel we have to act on them. So often we'll break precepts, do unskillful things based on the arising of states of dukkha. As we apply mindfulness 
awareness, we can see there's actually nothing in that dukkha. It's just another feeling, another experience that arises, ceases. So you're gaining a higher knowledge, a higher understanding that you can use. And the purpose of our practice is to cultivate this mind to higher states of sila, samadhi and panya and ultimately to liberate the mind from the desire and clinging which causes suffering. This is how we do it. By bringing up mindfulness and reflecting back on our experience, we're learning. And we shouldn't overlook these small moments of insight because they're just as valuable as any other moment of insight. Someone was telling me the other day about teaching from Lumpur Ha, who lives in Galasin in Thailand, almost a hundred years old now, very old forest monk, sometimes known more in, in recent years as Lumpur Dinosaur, because they found dinosaur bones in his forest. He's a very down-to-earth, practical monk, teaches very good Dhamma. And one year, Yendavasa, one of the junior monks came to him and said, I'm so frustrated with my meditation practice, I'm just going to give up. I never experienced peace, I've never attained samadhi. It's pointless. He's very depressed, annoyed with himself, annoyed with the world. So he, said, he just complained to Lumpur and he said, I'm, I've got no merit, I can't meditate. So Lumpur immediately made a joke of it, maybe just to calm the mind of the monk down. He said, oh, if you've got no merit, then I'll bring the monks together to do the chanting for you. The young monk was confused. He said, why do you have to bring monks together to do chanting for me? Lumpur said, well, if you've, got, you've lost your merit, you've got no more merit, it means you have a funeral. It's in Thailand, that means you're dead when you've lost your merit. Then Lumpur said, the main problem this monk was facing was not that he wasn't putting effort in his practice, not that it wasn't going well, it's because he was so obsessed with attaining samadhi and a state of peace, bliss. He was overlooking all the good things that were arising from his practice on a daily basis. He's constantly walking around saying, I've got to attain samadhi, attain a state of peace. He wasn't really seeing the opportunity to grow in the Dhamma of the practice of Sila Samadhi Panya. He's always just disappointed and frustrated. Lumpur said it's like, the villagers there, they go collecting mushrooms in the forest. So it's like a villager who's only interested in getting the big, juicy, good-looking mushroom. Because in those forests they do have huge edible mushrooms, but they're very rare. Most mushrooms are very small. Lumpur said, this person, they're obsessed with getting the big, juicy mushrooms, so they just keep walking past the small ones which are perfectly edible, perfectly useful. They never pick them, they just keep wandering around the forest and never find the big juicy mushroom. So they just get more disappointed, more frustrated, go around the whole forest, just give up in the end. 
You said, this monk, you're like that person. And the wise person, they go through the forest, they collect little mushrooms on the way. They can use them and eat them. Whether they meet the big mushroom or not, it doesn't matter, they're collecting all these small ones on the way. The practitioner should be like that, collecting insight along the way. Every moment of mindfulness can condition some insight into the three characteristics. Every moment of insight can have a liberating effect on the mind. It's a moment of liberation from greed, anger and delusion. Whether it's just a determination to keep a precept, sit meditation, walk meditation, bring up butto, turn to the breath. Every aspect of the practice is a little little moment of liberation from the hindrances, from the kalesa. But if we're always obsessed with we've got to get a deep state of samadhi or jhana, then we maybe no, don't notice these opportunities for insight to arise. We don't see the value of training in wisdom or, the, or how wisdom helps the mind because they're always just looking around for this big one, this big experience of samadhi. Maybe He said maybe even you attain it because you haven't trained in wisdom along the way. You attain it but you don't really gain much from it. You attain some deep feeling of bliss but you might call it blissful ignorance because you haven't trained in reflecting on your experience you're just being obsessed with obtaining a peaceful state so you come out of that peaceful state just as ignorant as before you still don't understand how to practice we shouldn't overlook what we call samadhi that is cultivated through the development of panya or wisdom This is all valid practice. Just having enough wisdom to keep a precept when there's a desire to break a precept. Having enough wisdom to put attention on a meditation object when the mind seeks distraction or is sleepy. As well as directly reflecting, contemplating over and over again an dukkha anatta in our experience. We have to train in wisdom from the word go. It's not something we wait for till some later date. This is why the Buddha put samaditi at the start of the Eightfold Path. We're constantly coming back to review our experience using the framework, the Four Noble Truths, reflecting on karma, the fruits of karma. Every time we cling on to an unwholesome state, it's a seed of karma that will ripen again later on. Every time we abandon an unwholesome state, it's another kind of karma. It's a karma that's supportive of liberation. It's kusala karma. The definition of kusala dhamma is kusala karma. is karma or dhamma that is for the end of suffering. Just recognize an unwholesome state, holding one's attention long enough, being patient, putting in the effort long enough, and then letting it go, not acting on it, not following it. That's a cause for liberation.
giving into it is just making the job harder, following it, acting on it, indulging it. It's thickening the covering of kilesa that covers over the jitta. Is that when we bring up mindfulness directed to the body and mind, and then it's bringing us to the amata dhamma, the deathless. Sajjan Chah used to say, the place that doesn't get born doesn't die, where the mind is detached with equanimity towards the different mental phenomena arising, the feeling, the mental states and thoughts, consciousness, perceptions and the body. There's a detached knowing, neither falling into attraction nor reversion, not delighting in, not averse to, just knowing it's like this. Maintaining that quality of knowing, this is what brings us to the deathless, the Dhamma that doesn't get born, doesn't die. The Dhamma that's free from suffering, free from birth and death, free from suffering. So I'll leave you with some these reflections tonight and we can do some chanting and then carry on meditating later. <laughs>